Hey everybody, good morning. It's great to be with you all. A little over a week ago, we celebrated a holiday. What was it? St. Patrick's Day, there we go, all right. St. Patrick's Day. Now, obviously some people don't celebrate St. Patrick's Day in here. I do, I have to, because I'm married to an O'Donnell. In fact, we got to spend one St. Patrick's Day in Ireland, and we were living in the UK at the time, and Steph's family, that's my wife, and, and for the purposes of this discussion, I'm gonna call her family the O'Donnell clan. The O'Donnell clan came to visit us, and then we went and we toured the Green Island of Ireland. We had a great time. We wound up going down to County Cork, and there we visited Blarney Castle. And Blarney Castle, spectacular edifice, great grounds. It was early spring, of course, so the daffodils were up. It was just a great time. And we climbed to the top of Blarney Castle, and it, it is a climb, by the way. It's rough-hewn, steep steps all the way up, and they have ropes to help you. So you climb up to the top of Blarney Castle, and there you meet a mystical rock called the Blarney Stone. So some of you have heard of this. The Blarney Stone is, like I said, this mystical rock at this castle, and it's said, according to legend, if you kiss the Blarney Stone, you will receive the gift of gab, which is to say you'll receive a certain facility with language, a certain talkativeness, a sociability, that type of thing. So the O'Donnell clan lined up and they all kissed the rock. I didn't. We were afraid of what might happen if I did. <laughs> and so I didn't do it. Also, side note, by the way, gross. What? I don't need to... You kidding me? I, and here's the thing, they have, they have, there's literally someone sitting by the rock with disinfectant to spray it, but that's not good enough for me. I was like, I'm not doing this. So anyway, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> we then had St. Patrick's Day, our last day in Ireland, it was fun. And you know, we think of St. Patrick's Day, we think of the four-leaf clovers, we think of the leprechauns, pot of gold, things like that. But it's worth remembering that St. Patrick was a real person, and not only that, he was a real person with a life worth celebrating. He's got one of the most interesting biographies, I think, in all of human history, and I wanna share a little bit of it with you today because it ties in with the themes of the message. So St. Patrick was not born in Ireland. He was not Irish. He was a Roman Briton. He was from, that is, Great Britain, the island of Great Britain, which is the major island of the British Isles, which now comprises England and Scotland and Wales. So that's where he was from. In the waning days of the Roman Empire's control of much of Great Britain, that's the 400s AD, and he was kidnapped at the age of 16 by Irish pirates. So he was kidnapped, and he was taken across the waves to Ireland, where he was made a slave. And of course, when we talk about historical realities like this one, we often make those claims, and we just kind of move on. But let's dwell on that for just a second. Let's think about St. Patrick and his life. 16 years old, on the cusp of adulthood, like most 16-year-olds, I don't doubt, he was filled with those normal hopes and fears about the future. May have had a girl that he was interested in, right? His family, his friends were there. And yet people took him by violence, grabbed him and put him in a ship and made him a slave on another island. So imagine what that was like. Imagine the feelings Patrick might have had in those formative years. The feelings of fear, of course, what's gonna happen to me? The feelings of despair at times, depression. Imagine the periods of ferocious anger as well, no doubt at these people who had taken him by violence. So Patrick, in his slavery, was made a shepherd, and the bleakness of his existence, he turned to prayer and spiritual contemplation, that is recognizing God's presence with him as he was out in the fields with the sheep. And he eventually escaped from Ireland and got to a ship and made his way back home. He trained for the ministry and decided to go into the ministry, and here's where the story gets really good. 
He felt a calling to be a missionary to Ireland. He felt a calling to go and to serve the people who'd stolen much of his youth, who treated him as property. And so he answered that call, and he went, and he traveled around, and he lived a life of many difficulties, but through his tireless and committed labor, God was able to work through him, and much of the island of Ireland was converted to Christianity in his lifetime, because he was willing to forgive the people of Ireland. He was willing to overcome the feelings of anger and vengeance, no doubt, that he harbored. And he was willing, that is, in short, to be a follower of Christ, to love those who had hated him, to be good to those who'd been bad to him. He loved his enemies to the point that they came to know Christ, a true Christ follower. This ties into our text today because we're gonna be looking at Christ on the cross. And we're starting a new series, as a matter of fact, this week, leading up to Easter, we're gonna look at some of Christ's utterances from the cross. And here on the cross, we see God's heart in the person of Christ. We see his heart for people, even people who do evil to him. So the text will be in Luke 23, 34. If you'd like to turn there, we'll also have it on the screen. I'll be reading from the New King James today if you're pulling it up on a device. And before we read the text, though, let's look at the story so far so that we can fully embrace and understand emotionally and mentally the saying of Jesus from the cross. Jesus, though entirely pure in motive and in deed throughout his life, is despised by the religious leaders of the time because the religious leaders love prestige, power, and money. That's what they're into. And Christ comes along with this ministry saying, actually, that's not what the kingdom's all about. Those things are often contrary to the kingdom. The kingdom is about self-giving love and service. The religious leaders despise that message, and they hate Jesus, and they want him dead. So they conspire to have him dead. And one of Jesus' closest followers betrays him. He's handed over to the Roman rulers eventually. And the religious leaders go and they stir up the crowds, the crowds of people in Jerusalem where this is all happening, and they stir him up to cry out to crucify Jesus. And they do, and they cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, to the point that the Roman ruler who recognizes that Jesus has done no wrong, concerned for his political career, says, okay, I'm handing this guy over, we're gonna have him crucified. And so then he was. He was crucified, and I, I want to dwell, it's an unpleasant topic, but once again, to fully embrace the heart of God and to see it today, we have to understand what crucifixion was like. And Jesus was even worse for a number of reasons than the normal crucifixion. First, Jesus is handed over to be scourged, which means he's whipped, and the whips, at the end of the thongs on the whips, have sharp objects, pieces of shell, glass, things like that, that would tear into the back. So the skin is flayed off the back of the person to be executed. Uh, Jesus was beaten as well. He was beaten before and after this. He was mocked. They spat on him. And then he was made to carry the cross out of the city. He had some trouble with that, so he got some help. Bleeding out. And he goes up to a hill. And there they nail him to the cross. Nails in his hands through his legs. And he's lifted up. And there he is, looking out over the people who've done this to him the Romans, the mobs, the religious leaders. And please remember, the brutality of crucifixion is not only in the physical agony of having a flayed back and pressed against wood and nailed to a cross. It's also in the horrible shame. Imagine going through the worst pain of your entire life and knowing you're going to die and doing it naked in public while people are mocking you. The level of cruelty of this form of execution, it really can't be highlighted enough. And so Christ is in that position, mocked, 
scorned, ridiculed, torn apart, on the verge of death, and he looks out at the people who should have worshipped him, but rather than worshipping him, they're mocking and jeering at him. And in the midst of this horrific injustice, the worst injustice ever perpetrated in human history, in the midst of all of that, Jesus prays, and he says this. This is our text for the day. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ's life up until this point has been characterized by communion with the Father and service of others. And we see that heart continuing here. He's still praying to the Father, and he's still serving others. He's praying for his enemies, the enemies who've killed him. Today we're gonna take three points from this text. The first is this, recognize that God wants to forgive. God was incarnate, he was in the flesh in the person of Jesus, and we see in Christ's heart, God's heart, and God wants to forgive. The second point today will be this, forgive others. We're called to be followers of Christ and to have his heart, and so we too need to be forgivers. The third point is be radically concerned for others, the way that Jesus was radically concerned for others, even in his death throes. Okay, first point, recognize that God wants to forgive. God is love, as John tells us in 1 John, and his heart is to forgive. Jesus, though enduring unimaginable suffering, wants forgiveness for the people that put him in that position. He, God in the flesh, looks out and he, he sees the spiritual ignorance of the people. They don't understand what they're doing here. And he prays that they would be forgiven. You know, we all do bad things. We all need this forgiveness. And some of us think, I've done some things. It's going to be hard to forgive. It's not hard for God to forgive it. None of our power to sin is greater than God's power to forgive. And here's a very key point. God wants to forgive us more than we want to be forgiven. God wants to forgive us. And so if you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, no, I, don't, I can't be forgiven for some of the things that I've done. You can be, because it's God's heart and he has the power to do it. Anybody can be forgiven. You know, in the Sunday school class that I teach, we've been studying the book of Jonah. We finished the study a couple of weeks ago. And I think this is a book that entertainingly and effectively displays this principle that God wants to forgive. So many of you know the story, but let's go over it really quick here. It's a good one, right? It's entertaining. So let's talk about the story of Jonah. And then we'll come up to the end of it, and we're going to dwell in this dialogue at the end of the book of Jonah between Jonah and God. But getting up to that dialogue, Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's called by God to go preach in Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire at this time was absolutely renowned around the world. They were infamous indeed for their acts of barbarity. They were known for the torture that they would inflict on people, on the people they captured in war. They were known for the display of the corpses of the defeated. They were just known as really, really bad and violent folks. And so Jonah's called to go preach to them. And as we learn as we read the book, Jonah's like, I don't want to go preach to them. And the main reason, it seems, that he didn't want to go preach to them is that he was afraid they were going to turn from their violence, and if they did so, he knew that God would forgive them. But he doesn't want them to be forgiven, so he's like, I'm not going to go preach there, and so he does something I think we can all agree is inadvisable. He runs for it. He should have gone east to Nineveh, he went west to, wait, let me get my rotation here. He should have gone east, but he went west, Okay. He, he went west, he went across the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, and of course there was a storm that assailed the ship and he wound up pitched into the ocean and as he sank into the black roiling waters of the sea, he repented 
as he was just about to drown, he repented, and because God has a heart for forgiveness, God saved him using a sea monster. So a sea monster comes through here, swallows him up. He's saved from drowning by the sea monster. He spends a few days in the sea monster, thinking, praying. And then how do I put this? He gets upchucked. So he, he comes out of this fish onto dry land, and he goes and he preaches in Nineveh, recognizing the futility of resisting God in this. He goes, he preaches in Nineveh, and his greatest fears are realized. The people of Nineveh listen. The leader of Nineveh says, we are violent people. We need to change. God's working in this situation in ways we don't even understand. And the people in sackcloth and ashes literally repent, and God relents from bringing catastrophe upon them. And so Jonah is ticked, and he trudges out of the town, you can imagine him kind of trudging out, kicking pebbles, thinking, you know, I was a successful preacher and I don't like it. <laughs> so he gets out of town and he goes and he sits and he's gonna watch, hoping maybe God will still destroy them. And he has a conversation with God. And he's petty and vindictive and angry as he talks to God. And we see this contrast between the divine heart and the human heart as it is so often contoured. Jonah is saying, and thinking, God, I don't want these people to be forgiven. They are evil, they are nearby to Israel, they are a threat, they are different than us, they're ethnically different than us, they're a different nation than us, there's probably an element of bigotry and nationalism here. All of those things, I don't want them to be saved. Let them go down. That's the human attitude. And so God responds, and the book ends with a question. It's in Jonah 4:11, and here's what God says. Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? End of book. Should I not pity this Nineveh, this great city, 120,000 people, the idiom, don't know their right hand from their left, is related to the idea of just spiritual ignorance. They don't know what's going on, they don't understand. Should I not have pity on all of these people and these animals included, by the way, God cares for the animals. Should I not have pity on all of these people? And we're left to ponder that and we can imagine Jonah there sitting on the hill looking over Nineveh and considering himself the heart of God. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the traditions hold that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, in which case it would seem he came around and was willing to humble himself in writing the book to show that divine heart. But we see in this story, we see in Christ on the cross, we see throughout the Bible, God wants to forgive. God wants to forgive you. It's a good and comforting fact that we should all live in and inhabit and enjoy. But notice that it also comes with a very challenging corollary, and that is that we are called to be people also willing to forgive. Our heart is supposed to be like God's, and God's heart is for forgiveness, so we are supposed to be forgiving others. And that's our second point today, forgive others. <laughs> The New Testament has a lot about forgiving others. Jesus taught about it in many ways. Paul wrote about it in many places, preeminent among them Colossians and Ephesians. I wanna look at one particular teaching on forgiveness because this one to me personally is the most poignant and pointed of the teachings about forgiveness. It's a parable and you'll find it in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. But I'll ask you to actually turn there with me or pull it up on your phone. If you don't want to, you can follow along on the screen. But I'm asking you to read along with me because I wanna really delve into this parable because it's so challenging. This one really bothers me. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35. As you turn there, I'll, I'll make a note about parables. You know, parables function in different ways depending on the parable. Some of them 
are primarily cognitive. They're just talking about ideas and they're kind of mental. Some of them are to elicit an emotional response. This does a little bit of both. In particular, I want to dwell on the emotional response that this parable brings about because I think that emotional response in us is quite instructive as we attempt to apply the parable to ourselves. Okay, starting verse 21 here. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. As most preachers and commentators point out correctly, it does seem that Peter's got a touch of smugness in the question, right? Like, I'll, I'll forgive somebody more than a couple times, actually. Seven? Well, Jesus kind of shuts him down and humbles him a little bit, right? Jesus says, in the next verse, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, <laughs> up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is to say, keep forgiving. Just keep forgiving. And he says, therefore, and he launches into this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And that's a lot, by the way, nature. And that is a ton. 10,000 talents is a, a massive amount of money that's owed. Verse 25, but as he, the servant, was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made based on the sale. Verse 26, then the servant fell down before him, literally got down on his knees, maybe on his face, looked up and said, master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. Just give me some time, he says. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. And notice what happened. Not only did he say, I'll give you time. He didn't say that at all, as a matter of fact. What he said was, just go, you know what? I'm going to forgive you the entire debt. Don't worry about it. You're off the hook for the money. Verse 28. But that servant, the forgiven servant, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Not much, especially compared to the amount that the forgiven servant owed. It's a paltry sum in relative to that amount. And he, the forgiven servant, laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Imagine that. Saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Same message that the forgiven servant had offered to his master. Verse 30, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So here's where we should have these emotional response, right? As we imagine the scene, and I love the phrasing here, grabbed him by the throat. As we imagine the scene, we're supposed to have a response to that. We don't like seeing that. We don't like seeing a wicked person grab someone by the throat and say, pay me what you owe, especially when that person has been forgiven. So the emotional response is one of indignation. It's anger. That's what we're supposed to be feeling right now, right? That, that indignation appropriately arises within us as we imagine this story. This is awful, this behavior. Let's keep reading, see what happens. Verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Okay, so as we're reading the story, let's pause there. We could just say, if we finished right there, we would say, nice, happy ending, right? Got him. That punk. <laughs> Got what he deserved. That's not the end of the story. 
Let's read the last sentence and brace yourself for it. We just read in verse 34, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Let's read the last verse of the story. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So we go from this happy ending to this chilling one, one that's clearly formulated to bother us. Because if we're Christians and we've been forgiven all, and we're refusing to forgive the people around us, we are the wicked servant. It's like Nathan said to, to David, you are the person. When we, forgive, when we refuse to forgive, we're the wicked servant. We're the hypocrite. If we're holding on to stuff. And notice, Jesus isn't interested in performative forgiveness. The type of forgiveness we do to, to make our ego feel better, so we say, yeah, I forgive you, I forgave him, right? That's not good enough. Jesus says, if you from your heart aren't willing to forgive the people around you, you are going to be handled just like he was, which is you're going to be delivered to the torment of the bitterness that resides in your heart because you won't let go of something. So we are handed over to the torment ourselves if we don't don't forgive. And in addition to that, of course, we are making ourselves less effective for God and his purposes, and we're making ourselves hypocrites. So are you a Christian here today and you have someone you need to forgive? If someone came to mind immediately, you need to think about that, right? You have someone you need to forgive. Are you holding on to something in your heart? Maybe you're playing forgiveness, but if you don't from your heart, because if you haven't, you're living with that bitterness and it's not good for you. We're called to be like Christ, who even on the cross is concerned about the forgiveness of the people who put him there. We have to follow that lead. We have to be willing to forgive so that we're not the wicked servant. And I know, of course, some people can't be reconciled with. I understand that. There's some people who won't reconcile with us. Here's what we do in that case. We still let it go. We don't dwell on it. We pray for them. We hope for the best. We hope for reconciliation. And we hope one day it gets better and we work towards that if possible. But we're called to, from our hearts, be people who forgive. That is, we're called to have the heart of God. Our third and final point today is this. Be radically concerned for others. Christ, whose whole service was about, his whole ministry, that is to say, was about service, continues to demonstrate that he's radically concerned for others on the cross. In the midst of this great pain and injustice against himself, his heart was concerned for the malefactors who actually are killing him. We are supposed to have this level of concern for others. That's what we're called to, and it's not easy. In fact, we need God's help, because we're all, at the end of the day, egocentric. That is, we're all focused on ourselves more than we should be. And there's a couple types of egocentrism here. There's one type of self-focus, which is, I'm pretty great, right? I'm pretty great, and I'm gonna show you how great I am. There's that side. There's another side that we have to be aware of. The side of, oh, I'm no good at anything, and I'm not, you know, I'm not this good of a person. That's still self-centeredness, by the way. You see what I'm saying here, right? There's two types of egocentrism. There's two ways of being obsessed with yourself. Just because you're not egotistical doesn't mean you're not egocentric. And we're all gonna struggle with one or both of these. I have ups and downs with both, frankly. Let's just be honest. You know what I mean? Maybe you can relate to me. I'm reminded of a a speech given by an author called David Foster Wallace. He was a very popular writer of fiction and journalism and essays in the 1990s and early 2000s. He died, unfortunately, in 2008, fairly young age. He gave a commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College, and in it he said this. This is so good. 
Here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to automatically be sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. This guy's going for it, right? Give him some credit. He's just, he's just laying it out. He's saying, everything in my experience, it leads me to believe I'm the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think, he continues, about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth, end quote. Wallace goes on to explain in his address that it doesn't have to be our default setting. We don't have to be so self-centered. It can change. And of course, Jesus came in his ministry saying it can change and it must change. You're not to be focused on yourself all the time. You're to be focused on others. I think one of the most interesting passages teaching this is from Philippians. Famous verses, verses I've read before here. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let me read them to you. Paul writes to this church in Philippi these words. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So don't do anything if the point is to show how great you are, to put yourself above other people, whatever this looks like, selfish ambition or conceit, showing off. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That is, don't pursue things trying to be better than others and to demonstrate that you're better than others, but actually in your mind, consider the people in your life to be better than you. That is a remarkable calling. We certainly need God's help for it, but that is the explicit calling of the passage. Consider that other people are actually better than you. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And you know, it's not only, the bar is raised even higher than that, by the way, because it's not only that we're to think of others as better than us, and we're not only to consider their interests, we're supposed to do this even for the people who are bad to us. This point is explicitly made on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Let me read you those passages. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And you know that there were some people at the Sermon on the Mount, they heard Jesus say those words and they heard him say that and they were like, this is a bit much. What is this guy, you really do that? That kind of mocking attitude that all too often we have when we hear the truth. And yet we see that that's exactly what Christ did on the cross. Forgiving and praying for the people who put him there. And so he says, you should do all of those things, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Remember, Sun and rain are good in, a, in an agrarian culture like, like ancient Israel. So it's like, he does good for everybody because he is good. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? There's a little bit of humor potentially there in that question because of course, tax collectors were kind of seen as gangsters. They were traitors, they took a little bit of the extra money and they charged too much. And so he's kind of saying like, you know, don't mafia bosses love people who love them. And if you greet your brethren only, verse 47, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We've got a high calling, and that is to overcome the evil of the world with good. And that means being good and being radically 
concerned with being good. You know, the word radical, I'm using that again and again, its root is radix in, in Latin, and actually means root. So like the word radish is taken from radix. So it means the root. And so a radical concern for others means we're rooted in a concern for others. That's who we are. And that's what we were made for. We were made to be like God, which is to live lives of self-giving love for others. And I want to illustrate this point even a little bit further by using my favorite fictional character. I've told you who it is before, but today I'm actually going to tell you why he's my favorite fictional character, okay? So this, is, this character is an alien, and his name is Kal-El. He was rocketed to Earth from a dying planet. He was raised in a small town in Kansas by a farming couple, and the couple gave him a good Earth name. Who knows it? Clark Kent, you got it. Not the only, I'm not the only nerd here is what I'm getting. That's good. If you thought that was nerdy, just wait for the next sentence. Uh, because of the effect of our young yellow sun on the cells of Cal slash Clark, <laughs> the young man developed many astonishing abilities. I'm reading that straight out of the notes. Uh, <laughs> he was invulnerable, he could fly, right? He could shoot lasers out of his eyes. He has arctic breath, okay? Did you know that? That's one of the superpowers, a weird one. You don't see it as much. You like put out fires with cold breath, okay? Of course, I'm talking about Superman here. And so Superman is a fascinating character. And as I said, I've mentioned that he's my favorite character before, but I've never said why. But like I said, don't worry. I'm going to tell you why right now. The reason I love Superman is this. Superman could do anything he wanted. He could live a life of ease. He could live a life of prestige. He could live a life of riches. He could live a life of power. He could do any of that stuff. But that's not what he does. He gets a day job, right? He's concerned with truth and justice. And so he gets a day job where he's writing as a journalist. So he can learn about things and try and publicize important things. And he has a secret identity, right? And he's working as a journalist. He has friends. He has family. He has a day job and a normal life. And then in his free time, he's doing everything he can to protect people. Whether that's, you know, putting off an alien invasion or helping a cat out of a tree. And this is why I love this character because he's so inspiring. He, he, he literally doesn't need a job, but he gets one. And he uses all of his spare time helping people. And so there's an inspiration here, but the real reason I bring this up is because Superman, in addition to being the most powerful of the heroes, is also the happiest of the heroes. And a lot of people say, well, I don't like Superman. He's too powerful. He's too goody-two-shoes. He's too happy. But I think we're missing the point here. The point is he uses all that power in service, and that's why he's so happy. At the end, I'm about to finish with the Superman talk, but we're just, just about there. Hang with me for another minute. Uh, minute and a half. So at the end of the movie, Superman, the movie, after all the good deeds are done, after the whole plot has run, he saved people, bad guys are in jail, the, the warden of the jail says, thank you, Superman. Superman says, thank you for all you do. Flies off, and he flies above Earth, and there he is over the curve of our planet in the background, and he smiles, and that's the end of the movie. That's a brilliant ending. Because after doing all of this good, Superman just shows he's happy doing this, the end. And that's revealing a shockingly deep truth, which is when you're made for self-giving love and you live a life of self-giving love, it's the most satisfying possible way to live. That's what we're made for. Nothing more satisfying than living and accomplishing what you were made to do. And all of us in our own ways, with our own skills, in our own settings, are made 
for lives of self-giving love, and if we can inhabit that the way that Christ did, if we can truly follow him in that, not only are we glorifying God and serving others and taking care of the world and helping God's purposes go forward, we're gonna be immensely satisfied and happy in that work. Now, that doesn't mean we're happy all the time, obviously. It doesn't mean there aren't difficulties. There will be. There's times of depression. There's times of sadness. But at the end of the day, there's a root, a core happiness and contentment because we're doing what we were made to do and we're serving God and we're in good communion with him through that. So let's conclude. You know, we talked about Christ on the cross and I want to talk about the reason that he was there as we wrap up. He did not have to be there. He chose to be there. God incarnate chose to die. So God, all-powerful, not only just a big, powerful guy, but the very ground of reality itself, becomes a human and dies. That ultimate power touches death through the death of Jesus Christ and destroys its power, and destroys the power of sin and darkness. Christ does die on the cross. He's buried. Three days later, he triumphs over the grave, coming out and declaring and inaugurating a new kingdom, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of forgiveness for anyone who will come. You can join this kingdom today if you never have before. It's possible you're here and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know that I've ever really connected with God, received that forgiveness. It's very simple. It's, it's, it's as simple as saying, I, I do want to turn away from these destructive behaviors in my life, these things that hurt me and hurt others. I want to turn from that and come to God and receive him and be a part of that kingdom and follow his ways, the ways that I was made to follow. You know, if you would like to receive Christ today and become a part of that kingdom, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. So let's all bow our heads, close our eyes.